CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, August 3rd starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back a great friend of the Ben Jarofsky show. Ben's talking with web editor for In These Times, Miles Comflossen. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and so much more. And if you want more from Ben Jarofsky than just today's show, that's cool. You can get on over to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Mayor Deliberate. Thursday, and here's why, because we have a very deliberate mayor, Mayor Brandon Johnson, I'm talking about. Before I take a deeper dive into Mayor Deliberate, I just want to shout out to the family of uh, Victor Parra, the great, great, great DJ. He passed on. I didn't know he had died. I never met the man. I just was a big fan of his DJing. He played for years. He was. I used to hear him on BEZ and then um, College of DuPage, a great disc jockey. And this is something that... Uh, he loved that he was the host of a show called Mambo Express. Now, this is something I didn't realize until I read the article, and it's going to tie into a conversation I'm going to have uh, with Miles Conflas and my guest a little while. We talk about labor. Um, but a longtime host of Mambo Express shared passion for Afro-Cuban jazz with thousands. Mitch Dudek, staff writer for the Sun-Times, good job on this uh, obituary. And here's the part that, uh, that just kind of blew my mind. A para left WBZ and moved his show in 2004 to WDCB-FM, where he hosted until signing off for a final time in 2017. All right, and then this is the next line. Mr. Para, who didn't earn any money for his radio gigs, spent hours researching and compiling music that he played on the air. His main job was working as a janitor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. I'm like, God damn. The man did not make any money. I mean, I'm just like, I paused. This guy was a genius at what he did, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know if you ever heard of, I was just talking to producer Chris. He's really into hip hop. And, you know, I was just thinking about how many artists try in this country to make a living out of their art, their craft, whatever you want to call it. And most can't. Weird country when it comes to art. Like right now, we're like destroying, <laughs> we're waging war, not we, but the powers that be are waging war against actors and writers. You know, like, just think about the creative process in America. This is what America's known for. This is like our great export, you know, movies, records, music. No, let's just crush the artists. Like, and like if 10 artists, Taylor Swift, Beyonce, Jay-Z, what have you, make a fortune that's like, wow, everybody's pursuing that dream. Meanwhile, the overwhelming majority can't make a living teaching or working as janitors. 
this guy was brilliant, in my humble opinion, uh, as a DJ. And um, he made his living as um, a janitor. Wow. So anyway, that is pretty deep. I'm going to have a conversation. I'll probably get into that a little bit with uh, Miles. Our journalists, artists? Hmm. Got to think about that. And uh, again, my shout outs, my um, condolences, I should say, to uh, Victor Perro's uh, family. All right. Now back to Mayor Deliberation. Another story in the Sun-Times had me smiling uh, in the headline. The city's badly rusted overhead beams at Pritzker Pavilion pose no danger to constant concert goers. That's what the city of Chicago says. So, all right. So here's the issue, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, if you've ever been to Millennium Park and you've ever watched a concert at the Pritzker Pavilion, I've done that many, many times. I just wrote a comma about this, a newsletter. I'm always cautious about saying what I like to do when it comes to the city of Chicago because I have a paranoia left over from the Daily Administration that if I like something, they're going to shut it down. Uh, I think that has changed with the Mayor Johnson administration. I think that changed even under Lori Lightfoot administration. Not sure about the Rahm administration, but uh, I always felt that the Daily people were they, they kind of bizarre vindictiveness uh, on their part. Uh, so I was like... I am not going to mention that I like this, that, or the other thing. They'll go after me, which is a weird form of paranoia. Uh, but I'm a big fan of concerts at Millennium Park. Go there all the time. And I'd never look up. So I never noticed that uh, the uh, overhead beams were rusted out. Okay. Uh, Why well, look up? I'm looking at the stage. Well, apparently some concert goer looked up, saw they were all rusted out, and uh, sent an email to the local alderman who Somehow or other, got it to the attention of the Sun-Times. They wrote a story. They interviewed the city. The city, it's, it's no danger to the public. No danger whatsoever uh, to the public. Absolutely. It's not like the beams are going to fall on people. They're just rusty. So it's got, it used to be all shiny and nice looking. Now it's rusty. Sort of like my car, if you will. Uh, I make no move to fix my car. If it's not going to cause a problem with driving the car, I'm like, I don't really care what it looks like. Take really out of that sentence. I don't care what it looks like. Let it be rusty. Uh, but that's a decision that the mayor of the city of Chicago has to make. It's one of the many, many, many guys confronted with decisions every single day. Literally dozens and dozens of decisions on all kinds of issues, big and small. There's going to be big issues for him to decide in the upcoming budget fight. But this is one of those issues like, so do you spend money fixing the overhead beams because they're rusty? Because they don't look nice if for the handful of people that look up and notice them? If the uh, engineers tell you that there is no danger to anybody from having rusty beams, why worry about it? Is it worth spending dollars? Think about all the things we have. So this is a decision the mayor has. Should the city spend money fixing up the beams if it could spend that money? I don't know, building housing for asylum seekers, for hiring more firefighters or hiring more police or training police or hiring more teachers or hiring more social workers or reopening the clinics or tax relief, which will never come. But any of these things that are on the table, which comes first? Fixing up the beams? This is a decision the mayor has to make. This mayor is the most deliberate mayor I've ever seen. I was talking to Miles about this before the show. He, there was an interview. He finally he did an interview at a press conference yesterday uh, at City Hall. And uh, the reporters are like, what are you going to do this? What are you going to do that? What are you going to weigh with this? And he goes, and he made it clear. He goes, you can't rush me. 
I'm taking my time. I'm going to think things through. I am going to be measured. I'm going to measure twice before I cut. I'm going to be precise. I'm going to be deliberate. I'm going to be patient. Here's the exact quote. Let's see if I can find the exact quote in today's bright one, uh, today's Sun-Times. Where, where, where did I say? Here we go. This is a question about uh, the Chicago Bears, whether he's going to rush into a deal, <laughs> whether he's going to cut a deal uh, with the Bears. And he says, this city has become accustomed to these types of decisions being made in a moment's notice. I'm a different mayor. You all, I am. I'm going to take my time because this getting this right is important. What I don't want to do is that you all push me to rush a decision to then come back to tag me for making a decision too soon that people don't ultimately like. At the very least, you know that whatever decision I made, that I didn't take it lightly. I believe the Bears understand that and appreciate that. And I'm not so sure about that last line, uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson. I understand the the... the the desire to be deliberate, but I don't think the Bears are. The Bears are playing you against every other city. That's not what's going on here. They're not like, well, take your time, Mayor Johnson. Be deliberate. Find the best location for us and think of the best structure to finance the deal. No, no, no. They got Arlington Heights over here. They got Naperville over there. They got Waukegan over there. Rickton Park of all suburbs just threw in. They're wheeling and dealing, trying to, they don't care. You could be planning for the next three years. If they cut a deal with Arlington Heights, if they work out that property tax issues they have with Arlington Heights, they're moving to Arlington Heights. And they'll be the Arlington Heights bears in my mind. So anyway, I don't know. Deliberate, deliberate mayor. That's just like a whole new phenomenon for me. I'm used to mayor in charge, mayor get things done. <laughs> How about Mayor Daly? Plowing up makes feel. I think, Miles, you were around for that. You may have been in high school when he did that. He wasn't deliberate. He's like, I got to get rid of makes feel. <laughs> he, he brought in the bulldozers at midnight. That's how you run a city. Could you imagine Mayor Daly being deliberate? It's like he's a diamond cut. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring on Miles Conflossen, editor writer from In These Times. Um, very thoughtful person, dear friend of the show, and a very deliberate writer and editor. He takes his time to say exactly what he wants and to say it right. Welcome back, Miles. Thank you, very good to be here, Ben. And I will, you know, give a shout out to our profession here as journalists. I think we uh, we are artists, especially when our prose is as lyrical as you and I. <laughs> Thank you, Miles, I appreciate that, man. Before, I, I mean, there's so much I wanna to talk to you about. I guess let's just, I mean, let's just start with the part that probably you and I are the only one. I, I'm just speaking for myself. But I want to hear the most of v Victor Parr, the great disc jockey, never made any money from being a DJ. That blew my mind. Miles, I was like, how could somebody so talented, like, not be compensated? We live in a capitalist country, Miles. Your talent is generally compensated financially. That's how people are measured for their talent in every endeavor, basketball, football, tech world, et cetera, and so forth. And this dude, this man never received any money for something that he was brilliant at. I'm not, not quite sure what to make of that. Do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I think that, that it speaks to, you know, the precarity of so much of our workforce, you know, especially in it feels like media where there's just a lack of, you know, the kind of infrastructure necessary to provide people living wages for their work. I mean, we come to expect in our society, people are working multiple jobs to make a living. And, 
when they do have passions or, you know, something that their, you know, their, their talents are, you know, whether they're musicians or yeah, DJs or what have you, they wind up doing that as what they call a labor of love, right? And I think that that's one thing capitalism teaches us is that we should treat these things as, you know, uh, we should be grateful that we even have the opportunity to do them, let alone make any type of money uh, off of it versus, you know, a different approach, which would say that people should be compensated fairly for, you know, for any of their work. Um, and I do think that that's, you know, a referendum of the economic system we have where it's impossible to find uh, sources of revenue for things that are as important as DJs and people that bring so much life and joy and uh, culture to to our society. So it's, about, it's really about like priorities and values. But you're right. I mean, he was an incredible DJ. And I think it's important to memorialize and, and fight for a world where people do get compensated. And so that because you can just imagine how many janitors there are out there that also could be great DJs, you know, but they're spending their lives toiling doing this other work because we don't have the resources to allow people to, you know, try to get to, to to build on those skills and have an outlet for them well i hope he was well compensated uh as a janitor the janitors are important uh have a very important role in society uh so at the very least if he wasn't well compensated for his uh artistry of mixing music which is what djs do uh their their ability to hear like to hear the transition in a way that i can't you know, that uh, to know, first of all, their voluminous understanding of music, uh, or comprehension, knowledge of music. So they know exactly, oh, they'll have like a, dozens and dozens of different songs in their heads. Uh, and then they can hear the transition from one to the other, not just a musical transition, but sometimes it's a thematic transition. Uh, an old friend of mine, may he rest in peace, Richard Piggy, was DJ for years and his uh, his music was the one I love the most, 60s and 70s. Well, he went back to the 40s and the 50s. Uh, but uh, uh, R&B and soul, he, he, could, he knew, like, this song connects with that song in this way. This songwriter was the same as that songwriter. This producer worked with that producer. He would string it together, Miles. I'm like, Richard, how the... What the... What's going on in that brain of yours, man? And... Um, it's storytelling, really. I mean, that's yeah. what, that's the that's the beauty of what DJs provide us is that the music itself, you know, you can dance to it, you can groove to it, but it also is whether it's instrumental or as lyrics, it's telling a story. You know, and DJs are 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 uh, molding that together. I was lucky enough a couple of weeks ago. I went to West Fest, the Street Fest over in uh, West Town, and uh, saw the legendary Derek Carter um, uh, DJ. Uh, and he had the whole street, you know, grooving to, and he, I remember he uh, remixed System of a Down, this kind of metal band, uh, into a dance beat and like a house track. It was incredible. And uh, so I, we, we are very lucky to live in a city where there is so much incredible uh, music and so many incredible DJs, and, you know, house heads out there. So shout out. Uh, all right, Miles, let, let's move on to politics. Uh, the news of the day. Love to get your take. Uh, from the left, Miles, again, editor, uh, writer for In These Times, uh, very much a lefty, proud of it, uh, on Donald Trump's latest indictment, uh, indictment number three, I believe, I'm keeping track. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this one has to do for the role he played uh, in the January 6th insurrection and the attempt 
to overturn the election. Uh, Joe Biden won the election. Uh, Donald Trump did absolutely everything he could to have uh, the election snatched away from Joe Biden and delivered to himself. I call it a coup. I'm not quite sure uh, if you agree with me on it or an attempt to coup. Um, your thoughts uh, on yesterday's indictment? We're living in strange political times where the third indictment of an ex-president who is also the front runner for the Republican nomination for um, the election next year is um, being greeted with kind of a shrug, I think, by a lot of maybe not the national press, certainly not the liberal press. But if you look within um, the Republican Party, uh, that's how they're approaching this. There was a story out today that quoted a you know, Trump ally saying that three indictments is way better than one because, you know, it's going to get people just kind of confused and they can't focus on any single thing. And honestly, I do think there is sadly some truth to that and that there's a little bit of like fatigue and malaise, I think, with hearing this constant um, beat and a, a drumbeat of, you know, of indictments. And it makes the claim that this is somehow a witch hunt maybe seem a little bit more legitimate when there's, you know, all these um, indictments coming out and what they claim is that it's in response to, you know, these revelations around Hunter Biden and potentially the Biden family's involvement in, um, you know, the Burisma Ukraine uh, scandal. I, I obviously we all watched right as that there was an insurrection at the Capitol. There was an attempt to overturn an election. That is probably the gravest political crime um, when it comes to our elections in modern memory. I mean, I think there's plenty of government crimes from the Iraq war to, you know, bailing out Wall Street we could talk about. But in terms of an, a, a crime around um, an election, since the, two, the 2000 decision in um, Florida that, uh, you know, elevated George Bush into office, we, we got, uh, you know, in front of our eyes on January 6th, we saw an attempt to overturn the election. And it, it really hinged on just a few things, right? The fact that Mike Pence decided not to go along with this fake electors scheme, that could have, you know, pushed our country into a complete democratic crisis if that would have happened and they would have tried to install Trump again. Um, so it's not, I'm not surprised that the president is facing legal, uh, you know, pushback for having taken part in that process and really led it. I mean, by all accounts, he, you know, if you listen to the phone call, even the, the Georgia phone call needing to find votes, like he was the one that was uh, pushing this. The issue is that it came, you know, two and a half, almost three years after the fact. Like, why was that? Why, why didn't Merrick Garland put a special counsel on in place on day one to go after this? We knew most of these basic facts um, even then, right, when 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 Biden took office. And yet we've waited so long that now there's a super short timeline, certainly before the Iowa caucuses and Super Tuesday. Um, in which, you know, it's very hard to see how a trial will actually take place and be completed before votes are started to be uh, tabulated in the Republican primary. And when you look at the Republican, like, you know, base, there's very little evidence that these indictments are turning them away from, from Trump. And if anything, I mean, you look at it, it's more than half of Republican primary voters believe the election was stolen, right? So it's like they don't think that there was that he was took part in a crime because they think what he was doing was actually trying to um, 
push forward the accurate, uh, you know, response to the election, which was to say, no, Joe Biden stole the election. Obviously, I think that that is completely off base. But if that's what the Republican primary voters are going to think, <clears throat> it's, it's very unclear how this indictment is going to change that. So in terms of the political um, ramifications of it, I think it's all just about this kind of timeline. And I think that that's, that's fair to ask why, you know, the first indictments that came down were around, you know, uh, hush payments and then documents, which, you know, may be legitimate. But the fact those came before something around the overturning of the election, which is clearly the most, you know, uh, important crime that the, the Trump was involved in, that, you know, can make raise raise some serious questions around it. Um, and to me, it's just going to come down to what is going to, you know, what is this timeline going to look like? Are we going to have a trial during the election season and the run up to November? And like, how will that play out when it comes to votes being counted and um, and potential prison time? Right. I mean, I think that that's obviously the game plan is for the, the Trump legal team is just delay, delay, delay so that Trump can win the election or try to seize office, however that might take place. And then he can, you know, return all these, you know, install a new justice department and wipe all these uh, uh, indictments under the rug. So I don't know how that's going to play out. And I think that unfortunately there is just a huge crunch in terms of time before um, to, to, to see this get played out. If we were talking about this a year ago, you know, that we would be in very different uh, world in terms of what how these things could play out, but the fact that we're, you know, we're just months away from the first Republican primaries, um, and you know, there's going to be debates like where there's a presidential, there's a Republican debate coming up in just uh, you know a few weeks, and Trump's not even going to participate in. Well, he's uh, made that he's stipulated that he's not going to participate. I, yeah, I mean, vacillating. Last I heard, go ahead. Well, I think that that's. I mean, that by all accounts, like on Tuesday night when after this and indictment came down trump was you know golfing in bedminster and then he had a dinner with the fox news executives and they yes. were lobbying him apparently to participate yes. in the debate because they want it because that's good ratings yeah. and he's like no i mean sounds i mean i don't think he's necessary he said he most likely will not do it I so see. i guess we'll we'll have to see on that but yeah i mean i, I think it's probably a smart strategy for him because why does he want to you know have to face any questioning around this he's riding high he's like over 50 percent um in the polls dominating DeSantis and everybody in the field. So I think it's it, it looks very clear like he's going to be the Republican nominee. And so, and I don't think these indictments are going to change that. So it's hard to see how a legal outcome is going to change what's likely going to be a head to head between him and Joe Biden in uh, November. Well, I will answer your first question that you asked and then get your response to that answer. So why did it take so long for Merrick Garland to act? Well, first of all, Merrick Garland uh, was not the uh, prosecutor, as you know, uh, who, who drew up the indictment and brought it for a grand jury. It was a special uh, special prosecutor, Jack Smith, who was uh, selected by Merrick Garland. And I believe this was what was going on. I think, uh, and I think this was a huge mistake in my opinion. This is a mistake. Just take huge out, just mistakes good enough. Uh, by the Democrats and by those Republicans who realize how dangerous Donald Trump is to our democracy. Uh, Donald Trump has done an excellent job. MAGA has done an excellent job. The Republican Party has done an excellent job. And Fox TV has done an excellent job of riding the refs. We've talked about this in the past. It's a sports metaphor. You, it, it's... <laughs> 
it's like LeBron James always crying about every call uh, with the ref that the referee makes, and so that the next call, the, maybe the, the ref will just give him one. If, I see it happen all the time at basketball with referees. You've seen it too. Like there'd be a right, a, a call on one end of the court. Uh, that could go either way. LeBron's crying and screaming, and then lo and behold, there's an offensive ch- charge called out at the other end that gives the ball back to LeBron. Funny how that works. Uh, the Republican Party have created this notion that they're martyrs that they've been picked on. Uh, it's a very successful ruse, in my opinion. They get to uh, commit crimes without punishment. There's, I've never seen anything like it. I talk about this all the time in Chicago. We, any politician, they're always tempted, commits a crime, they're indicted. It's just, okay, you committed a crime. We all know you did it. So the only issue is, you know, I don't know, yeah, is there anything, extenuating circumstances involved here? Is there a real weakness in the prosecution's case that will get you off? Most likely not. Can't think of many who were acquitted. And they go to prison. And it's like nobody's saying, oh, my God, the system is rigged against these politicians. <laughs> oh, oh, poor Eddie Verdoliak and Eddie Burke and Michael Joseph. Man, I've never heard anybody say that. But when it comes to Republicans, they do something wrong. You catch them on freaking tape. You got Donald Trump on tape telling the secretary of state of Georgia to get rid of the votes. So he could be, I'll take it from there. You just throw out the votes. I'll take it from there. Got them on tape. And somehow or other, they start crying and sobbing and whining, and that's not a crime. So the Democrats, they're like, we don't want to look like we're picking on them. So they held up. Like, the deal was, all right, Donald, you just go away. Don't don't spark any more insurrections, and we'll just look the other way. And guess what? Not only did he continue to give the middle finger to uh, Joe Biden and, and uh, the everybody who opposed him, uh, but he's running again. <laughs> that's when, and I believe that's when they finally said, oh, he's running again? We, we can't let this happen. So I totally believe it was political in that it was uh, the decision to go after Donald Trump for what should have gone. They should have gone after him immediately after uh, January 6th, in my humble opinion, instead of that congressional committee. You remember that one with the, the hearings and everything? Instead of that, uh, of criminal proceedings. I, I do believe Merrick Garland is so cautious and they held back because they were intimidated by the Republican Party. and They didn't want to be accused of being political. And now, of course, they're just being accused of being political anyway. So that's my theory. Your response. Well, it is political. I mean, you're right. I mean, but this is the exact this is also the kind of a Republicans case. Right. Is that this the, the timing of it makes it so that it clearly was um politicizing the Justice Department, like if the Justice Department, if it was just about the legal questions, then yes, we, we should have, you know, put forward charges as soon as the Merrick Garland took off. That's what I mean is you should have appointed a special counsel like Jack Smith then rather than waiting until what was it like a year ago or, so, or something. And this goes to, you know, this broader question of just like, what is the role of justice departments and do they are they serving the administration or are they serving and clearly we saw under Donald Trump that it was immediately politicized right like that's what you know Jeff Sessions and everything was all used as a way to uh, push forward a political agenda and if Democrats they just can't have it both ways of trying to be above the fray while still defending our constitutional democracy because the 
you know, they can't go, go hand in hand when you have a party in the Republicans that is dead set to basically uh, overturn our constitutional republic and, and, and hand over power to whoever who's most willing to take the risks and break norms. And uh, that's what Trump offers. And I think the Republicans see that as a great opportunity, because if you can win elections or take power without having to win a legitimate election, which is what all of the, you know, their, the party's efforts have been disenfranchising voters, throwing away votes, because this doesn't just happen in phone calls. It happens through policy as well. Right. I mean, the Voting Rights Act being basically ripped up by the Supreme Court, that's part of a political goal that the right has now accomplished. And so Trump is a great figure in that he can provide just like the basest version of that. And people will point it on him. It's like, oh, he's kind of a, you know, so um, blunt in how he like approaches things. But it's pushing forward the same political um, ideology and framework that the Republican Party as a whole has embraced and has embraced for a long time, not just since Trump got in office of this, of mangling our democracy so that it can be, you know, used as a tool to get them in office no matter what. All right. And so if Democrats are not willing to play by similar rules and uh, treat this as a game of, you know, power relations, then this is what we're going to get is these kind of, you know, indictments that come months before an election is going to start, you know, at least the primary election. And that makes it political. It's way more political now. Right. Because it's there. He can claim and this is why Trump announced so early. Right. Is so that he could say he was an actual <laughs> candidate for it is. But yeah. we could have seen this coming. It's not like this was all like a surprise. And that's what's so confounding to me is this idea that like now we're like caught in this situation and we shouldn't, Donald Trump should not be allowed to run for president again. He already tried to overturn one election. Lord knows what he's going to do if, you know, the polls aren't looking good for him ahead of November and, you know, he's facing like legal jeopardy. What that will mean, right? Yeah. Especially when he has a base of millions of people behind him that basically will believe um, whatever he says. And that's kind of the, that's more of a testament to a broken political system across the board. Um, and the way you deal with that, I think is by, you know, accountability. This is what was so frustrating, right? When Obama took office and was like, we're going to move on from the George W. Bush administration, rather than prosecuting anyone when it came to, you know, war crimes and all kinds of uh, misdeeds that were done. It just created this sense that we can never fix problems. We always have to be moving on. And but you can't, there's no healing there's no moving beyond things if you don't deal with them wounds just fester and that's i think what we're seeing now with the um, rise of maga and the fact that there's like nobody even on the right is willing to criticize trump about these things right the, all you get is like chris christie maybe asa hutchinson mike pence saying some critical things but even his closest rivals like desantis are just lining up to defend him well, uh, that, yeah that's a mistake by the way in my humble opinion um, I truly believe you can't beat Donald Trump uh, by being a wimp. You got to go at him. And, uh, you know, but going back to something you said, more and more, the older I get, Miles, the more I realize that President Obama, like, sold us a bill of goods in some ways. And I just saw this article in the paper. I don't know if you saw this. Where uh, it was, I forget where it was. Washington Post, New York Times, probably both. Yeah. Uh, President Obama had a meeting with President Biden in the White House, and he warned him about MAGA. Okay, which like I just I was smiling when I read it. 
you know, like MAGA doesn't play President Biden, like as if President Biden hasn't figured this one out yet, right? Uh, uh, and uh, you got to be vigilant about them. This is coming from the man who said there are no blue states and there are no red states. That was his signature speech in the 2004 Democratic Convention, which set the tone. Which set the tone for uh, the Democratic Party's response and um, in 2008 with the Republican Party. And he said that in the middle of, was it two wars? That so many people in this country opposed uh, war in Iraq and a war in Afghanistan. Like, there's no difference. What are you talking about? These are major (laughs) middle wars. You know, Mayor Daley, I don't know if you were around for this, rounded up all the demonstrators, sent a message. Remember when the demonstrators took to the streets of Chicago against the war? And Mayor Daley said, "Hey, hey, George Bush, I'm on your side in this one. And they rounded them all up. Woman jail pretty much killed the the protests. I just like I believe that the Democrats have bought into an argument, uh, Miles, that is a self defeating one, and that is is that the other side is playing legit, that the other side is playing by the same rules, that the other side will abide by the same norms that the Democrats do, and that wasn't the case in two thousand and four when they manufactured a reason to go to war. And I don't think it's the case now, your response. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the same is true when we have this whole, you know, uh, adulation of bipartisanship when it comes to lawmaking. Similarly, you know, is that there's this assumption that there's good faith or that there's, you know, deals to be struck when in large part, we see a Republican Party that's completely hostile to workers' rights and labor unions. It's hostile to dealing with climate change, like, a, you know, an actual crisis that's facing our society um, that refuses to, you know, think that there, there's a need to have any type of government safety net or welfare. When you're dealing with people that, you know, are dead set against those things, it's impossible to put forward to, to, to get an agenda. And that's why so many, you know, progressives in Congress pushed to get rid of the filibuster during the, you know, first during the first couple of years, of the Biden administration, knowing that that was the brief period in which, you know, progressive laws could be enacted. Yeah. And instead they didn't. And we now have divided government again with a house that is doing no kind of lawmaking. All they're doing is talking about impeaching Biden and trying to, you know, um, stop the debt ceiling from being lifted and wreaking economic chaos so that they can blame uh, Biden and the Democrats, you know, in t- 2024 for a t- terrible economy. They're failing at that, but that is what they're attempting to do. And so therefore, yeah, we're stuck in this interregnum where we don't have the ability to actually put forward the goals that the Democrats run ran on. You know, I mean, so, a lot of things did get done. We now like have industrial policy actually in America due to things like the CHIPS Act and um, the Inflation Reduction Act and even the American Rescue Plan initially. But that's when things stopped. And we're going to and we're just in this period. And that's like that's what people that's what makes people lose faith in the political system and democracy in general and turn away when they just see um, nothing getting done and they just see loggerheads and people fighting and everything. I think that that's that's a real crisis. Right. Is that we don't have the ability to take advantage. And it's due to this. um you know, belief, false belief that we can just strike a deal. And I think, unfortunately, that's kind of what Biden 
promised. And in some ways, you know, he did get a bipartisan infrastructure deal done, but that was extremely watered down. And Lord knows that was not full of the type of ambitious progressive policies that were initially proposed. Um, and instead, these efforts to kind of strike a deal. Yeah, I just think that that's what when we think that we're both sides are like playing by the same rules, we're going to delude ourselves into you know, getting the most out of what we can on the current system of, you know, power relations versus trying to actually take strong action, which would have been, you know, getting rid of the filibuster and just saying, hey, we're going to do that. We're going to raise the minimum wage. We're going to, you know, make the child tax credit uh, permanent or at least extend it for many years. But we didn't do any of that stuff. And so that's, I think, a real challenge, especially when you look at like the Senate map for future years yeah. and how disadvantaged the Democrats are going to be. It's hard to see, you know, much future for that kind of big progressive legislation getting through, um, even if Biden wins a second term. Yeah, well, we'll see about that Senate map. We'll hold off on that one. I had uh, our, our show's uh, expert on uh, and uh, Andrew Allison, uh, the kid genius you know, when it comes to politics. We went state by state and he's optimistic. This was about a month ago. Uh, but he's optimistic in state-by-state -state battle that Democrats can hold on. But your larger point, even if they do hold on, is so accurate. Uh, and it's just, it just, um, it, I just look back on it. Every, absolutely everything uh, that we're talking about, this hesitancy. I began the show by teasing Brandon Johnson for being deliberate. But it's, it's like classic Democratic behavior. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's work with the other side because they're people of good faith. And if we're nice to them, they'll be nice to us. I'm like, where does that ever work? <laughs> God. Oh, Lord. All right. I'm going to resist now going off on a riff about Brandon Johnson uh, posing with Mayor Rahm and sending out that tweet about what a uh, great leader Mayor Rahm was. All right. Let's. Um, Let's move on to uh, something that you raised in our pre-show discussion, and I would love to hear this riff. Uh, so one of the central uh, themes of Donald Trump's defense is his First Amendment right. I'm laughing as I say this. I'm trying to say this with a straight face, ladies and gentlemen, because the First Amendment is such a joke the way the Republicans use it. But he has a First Amendment right, First Amendment protected right to say what he wants. If he wants to say that the election was stolen, even though it wasn't, he has a First Amendment right to do that. If he wants to uh, uh, fire up a group of uh, MAGA uh, insurgents to go to the Capitol and they overtake the Capitol, he has a First Amendment right to do that. If he wants to call up the Secretary of State of Georgia and tell them to throw away the votes, he has a First Amendment right to do that. If he wants to call up electors, uh, politicians in Arizona and Michigan and Pennsylvania, put pressure on them uh, to um, get behind a separate group of Donald Trump electors, he can do that. If he wants to call up Mike Pence and call him a pussy and a wimp for not throwing out the election and giving it to him, he could do it. He has a First Amendment protection right. That's his argument, ladies and gentlemen. You're going to hear a lot about the First Amendment. And how Donald Trump has got more First Amendment rights than anyone has ever had in the entire history of the United States. Tell us about Emily Drabinsky and her First Amendment protected rights. Because what a con game MAGA and the Republicans are playing with this. Uh, take it away, Miles. Well, Emily Drabinsky is the uh, head of the American Libraries Association, the ALA, and as I'm sure some listeners know, she has been the 
target of a vicious right-wing attack against her, including by you know, legislators, elected officials, and states across the country that are trying to disaffiliate from the ALA now because of her stated political beliefs, because she is, you know, an open socialist. Um, she's also a lesbian, talk openly about that. Um, but basically, they're saying that this is all like a Marxist plot. Interestingly enough, they're not, they don't talk about like any of the tenets of socialism, about like, you know, enshrining democratic rights or, you know, in economic security or, you know, providing welfare for a basic standard of li uh, living and um, economic equality. Instead, they just say that, oh, they're going to, what she's going to do is be too woke, basically, and that she's going to be, because she is a Marxist, as there, she's going to put in books and libraries that are going to have trans characters and, you know, sexualize children and things like that. All these scare tactics that just fits in with what the rights kind of culture war front is these days, which is this um, freak out over kids being, you know, used or exploited in some way, even though there's no evidence that Emily Draminsky or anybody in the ALA is involved in any of that. That's just what the cultural freakout is over right now. And they're saying because she's uh, a state socialist that she shouldn't be allowed to be in, you know, running an organization that their state is involved with. So they're basically trying to silence her, right? And, and try to take her political positions as reasons to not allow her to be in a position, even though she was elected to the position. Um, it's basically is cancel culture. I mean, that's what they're engaging in is they're just trying to cancel her. And she obviously has the right to have any beliefs that she wants. She actually wrote a beautiful essay that's in the upcoming issue of In These Times. It's a, a issue themed around socialism. It's a really um, in-depth look at uh, the current state of the socialist movement in the United States. So that's going to be the next issue of In These Times. I definitely recommend people pick it up. And you can read in that issue um, an essay by her about her beliefs. And she states very clearly, you know, which believes in equality and um, basic standards of living and the library as a public commons where people can you know, it's built on the idea of sharing, right? And people love libraries. Libraries get huge marks, and yet that's the thing that the right always goes after, is trying to defund them. That's definitely what's going on in states around the country, so it's part of a broader attack. But it is ironic that there's this attack on the free speech of this librarian at the same time that free speech is being invoked to defend um, President Trump. And I'll just say, I'm like, what, Ian, former President Trump, and what, what, what you just said is like laying out a lot of different uh, elements of what Trump has been indicted for. A number of those things, the indictment does say he does have First Amendment rights to do, right? They, the Jack Smith acknowledges that he could say that he didn't believe that the election was fair and that, or that he actually won. That is protected under his First Amendment rights, and that's acknowledged. What he didn't have the right to do is then try to carry out a attempted coup, as you say, and like and and put pressure on people to throw out votes and disenfranchise voters and. Um, conduct basically an effort to, um, to yeah, overturn to put in fake electors and overturn the election. That you, that's not the First Amendment. That's you know an attempt. To, that's insurrection basically. Um, so uh, yeah, that's kind of where the where the issue stands. So I, I I just don't think it really matters because even if they, I don't think that'll fly in court. It's certainly not in front of a jury in D.C. What they're saying now is that, oh, the D.C. jury is going to be too biased against Trump, so he can never get a fair trial there. I say to call that bluff, right, and say, okay, let's do it wherever, you know, you could 
to have the have it in I don't know Alabama or South Carolina or something like that might be more friendly to Trump. I don't know, but the basics of the case are going to be the same no matter what kind of jury is looking at it. Um, so I don't I don't know on, on that question, but I don't think that the defense around the First Amendment really matters. They just want something to say. Uh, the basic defense is that the same defense that's been the entire time under Trump is that this is a witch hunt, right? And that's just what they're going to keep. Um, coming back to. And I think it's doubly ironic when you have a literal witch hunt going on against uh, somebody like Emily, Emily Dramitsky, who has far less power than Trump, um, and yet is being targeted by the same forces of trying to, you know, silence people because of their actual political beliefs. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I'm just waiting for uh, Jason Aldean or Kid Rock uh, to come to the defense of Emily. Uh, these are big believers, supposedly. Uh, Bill Maher, come out from under the table wherever you're hiding. Uh, Joe Rogan, uh, First Amendment guys, uh, when it comes to Donald Trump, uh, nowhere to be found when it comes to a lefty. It's generally how it goes in this country. It was the left, I should remind you, uh, that was uh, prosecuted throughout the 40s and the 50s uh, for their political beliefs uh, and into the 60s. Uh, let's not forget the Black Panthers. So uh, this country has a very curious attitude to the First Amendment, and uh, it's very rich, to put it mildly, to hear uh, Donald Trump leaning on the First Amendment. Uh, I'm totally uh, for having the trial in the uh, Washington, D.C. I absolutely look forward to that trial um, on many reasons. I stated this yesterday when I was talking about this with Monroe Anderson. Um, Washington, D.C., we have this insane electoral map. We have this insane electoral college system of selecting presidents that benefits MAGA. That's the only reason we have it. As I like to point out, with, the, with today's theme, Miles, the Democrats, if it would have been reversed and uh, Gore had narrowly defeated Bush in 2000, having, uh, thanks to the electoral college, uh, even though he lost the uh, popular election, the Republicans would have started to change our system to abolish the Electoral College immediately. We, they would be into the 23rd year of their effort to abolish the Electoral College. They probably they may have succeeded because it's a ridiculous, absurd system. Even within that ridiculous, absurd, unfair system, this is how far the Republicans go. They are fighting to keep Washington, D.C. from being a state because they don't want <laughs> They know that's like guaranteed votes for the Dems. And so I love it that the, the citizens of Washington, D.C., whose central voting rights are being denied to them by the Republicans, are the ones who get to decide on Donald Trump's innocence which is by the way what a funny word to apply to donald trump innocence okay like this guy is definitely not innocent our our guilt so that's i it i mean donald trump's lawyer wants to move it to west virginia i don't know you know i heard west virginia hey donnie you should have done the crime in west virginia if you wanted the case come on donnie you got to plan these things through Anyway, I, that's my take on uh, All right. Uh, so when is the uh, uh, Emily um, Drabinsky's article coming out in, in these times so folks can be ready for it? Yeah, so it's in the August-September um, 
issue. So that will probably be reaching subscribers in um, about a week, week and a half. And you can still sign up for a subscription now at In These Times. We're going to be doing a few promotions um, and, uh, on the website, inthesetimes.com, and get a subscription and you'll get that first issue. And there'll also be on newsstands. I'm not exactly sure when it'll go online yet, but sometime over the next month. Well, I am uh, going to be leaning on uh, Miles uh, to do an old-fashioned Chicago cut a deal. Let's get Emily on this podcast because uh, uh, I, I I got a lot of respect for her uh, and, and the fight she's waging. And she is under siege, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the right does not play, okay? Uh, I know that uh, uh, President Obama tells us there's no red states, there's no blue states. But when it comes to uh, maybe Emily, could have a, uh, Drabinsky would have a different take on that one uh, at this stage. All right, let's talk about uh, the state of labor uh, in this country. Um, as we speak, uh, there are two prominent strikes uh, in the, the entertainment industry, the writers for Hollywood and the uh, actors for Hollywood are on strike. Uh, and every day I see a picture of a famous face on a picket. I just saw one of someone sent me of Adam Sandler uh, uh, holding a picket sign. It just like blows my mind, you know, that Adam Sandler is on a picket uh, line. He's fabulously wealthy. Um, but again, he illustrates what I was talking about earlier uh, when I was talking about Victor, Victor Para. The vast majority of uh, people in this industry are struggling. And there's a few that make it to the top, make a lot of money, uh, and it deflects from the reality that, that, that this is not a way of investing in human beings. Do you follow what I'm saying? And so people can have a life, <laughs> have an existence. Uh, that's the middle-class dream, uh, if you will. Talk a little bit about the state of labor uh, in 2023. Well, we started talking about some, you know, more depressing topics, the, the continued relevance, sadly, of our former president and our public life and, you know, his attempts to malign democracy and the hesitancy, as you put it, of the Democratic Party to stand up and either try to enact a progressive agenda or... Um, even to actually prosecute criminals for their crimes. Um, but if we're looking for bright spots in terms of the American political landscape, I think you have to see this moment in um, the labor movement with a real revival of uh, aggressiveness and militancy as something to be excited and hopeful about, because you know this is the pathway towards Political, broader political shifts is seeing organized working people demanding their rights and creating a movement to serve as that uh, vehicle to express their interests and to enact social change. And I think that's really what we have been seeing over this past year. I mean, the caveat is that there is a, remains declining union membership in America. It's still, it's like around one in 10 um, people are members of a union and that has to do with a uh, really vicious anti-labor law regime that exists in the United States um, and how difficult it is to fight off employer intimidation and attempts to make sure and right to work laws that are in um, so many Republican led states around the country. But if you look at the strike activity, I mean, since, I mean, there was an uptick in I think it was like 2018 during a lot of the teacher strikes around the, uh, around the country in West Virginia and Arizona and so forth. But this year is like, one of the high points in terms of that type of labor activity. And you're right, the, the Hollywood strikes of uh, writers and actors is a good example of that. There's also smaller strikes in Erie, Pennsylvania. Workers at the WAPTEC are 
uh, out on strike actually demanding the ability to strike being in their contract as you know a tool in labor's toolbox to use to get better contract demands um and this just shows that we're changing kind of the perspective for so many years you know ben like we've lived through what seemed like real real hesitancy on the part of union leadership to to fight back you know to take on bosses and there's so many examples of this certainly the teamsters under hoffa too um the uaw under its previous leadership which was still like associated with walter ruther and the you know anti-labor forces from decades ago well now the teamsters in their um fight with ups they won one of the most um generous contracts they say, I mean, union leadership says ever, um, they say they extracted about $30 billion from UPS um, and it was due to a credible strike threat. They were about to walk off the job and you already had suppliers like moving to FedEx and other places because they were scared that they were gonna suddenly not have their packages be able to be delivered um, if there was a, a walk off and that was gonna be about 350,000 workers. That didn't happen and instead workers won some really incredible um, victories in that in that contract, and the Teamsters are now led by Sean O'Brien, who is you know, is associated with Teamsters for a Democratic Union, a reform caucus that has really pushed for a different approach um, when it comes to um, a, you know deal dealing with bosses and management such as at UPS, and then at the UAW, the auto workers elected Sean Fain, another reformer who is leading up the negotiations that are going on now with the big three automakers and that we could also see you know a potential strike or at least a, the threat of a strike um, as uh, auto workers demand their rights and we're seeing the UAW change as well right that's what a lot of these like uh, academic workers are affiliating with the UAW so it's a really changing landscape in terms of the internal um, uh, union politics but uh, this is all to say that what we're what we're seeing is very unusual in terms of a time when workers are really coming together and uniting and supporting I mean I just <clears throat> edited an article that's on in these times about the cross-union solidarity that's been happening and that's really unprecedented is all these these unions are standing with one another and um, not not only like not scabbing but also not even they're like there's sympathy strikes effectively that are uh, that are happening, and that's a, uh, that's a sign that the labor movement is really uniting. And I think that that's you know an exciting thing that we should really take into account when we're talking about what's happening and the economy in general, right? I mean, people talk about there's you know unemployment is lower, and there was all these. If you listen to people like Larry Summers, they were like, oh, we need to jack up unemployment in order to. Uh, stave off a recession, you know, and to get inflation down. Well, we didn't do that. Instead, we have, you know, a hot job market where there's, there is low unemployment. Workers' wages are going up, especially at the lowest rung. Um, there's still plenty of economic insecurity going on, but like some general factors are increasing. And that's in, lar in large part because of this uptick in unionizing and labor activism, especially in fields that previously hadn't seen it, like tech and uh, digital media, you know, are kind of our work, you know, both of us are uh, union members and organizations and fields that like previously probably weren't going to be unionized. That's all part of this larger trend we're seeing happening of uh, worker power consolidating. And I think that that's one of the real bright spots when we look out and the 
from the perspective of like progressive politics looking at the United States. And I think more people should be paying attention to that as an indicator of how politics works, you know, and how social change can happen. Uh, so let me uh, throw out uh, the name Amazon. Uh, you mentioned this before we went on the mic, and uh, I cut you off because I said, save it for the mic. Uh, and um, so when you look in your crystal ball, uh, how likely is it that uh, labor is successful in unionizing Amazon? Because that's the big one out there. Go ahead. Sure. Well, and Amazon, we should say, I mean, a lot of us maybe on the left are rightly suspicious of the role of a monopoly company like Amazon in our society where they own literally like the Internet, you know, like how um, people are able to connect with one another online, like telecommunications, obviously retail, video, shipping, all these different, you know, elements of our society are um under the hood of this uh, tech behemoth, but it is trusted, right? And that's, I think it's one of the most trusted institutions by the public uh, in our country, along with the military. And so that means that, you know, people are used to Amazon. It's not like Amazon's gonna go away, but what can happen is it could be unionized. And I, we've started to see some green shoots there. Folks will remember the um, ALU, the Amazon labor union that organized the warehouse in uh, Staten Island, because the company is continuing to refuse to bargain a first contract, they're still stuck in negotiations. That's a common tactic. You know, employers will just not come to the table, basically. I mean, the Starbucks workers are going through the same thing right now. And you really need a strong NLRB and a strong, you know, labor department, I think, in order to combat that. And we haven't seen enough. And we certainly have a friendly, labor-friendly NLRB under um, General Jennifer Abruzzo and Julie Sue at the Labor Department is like, you know, standing with workers, but it doesn't have enough resources to combat the type of obstinance and um, behavior that unions or the companies like Amazon put forward. That said, now more, you know, of organized labor itself is trying to, is, is see, rightly sees Amazon as a necessary um, place to get a foothold. And so the Teamsters have launched a whole new Amazon division specifically focused on trying to organize Amazon workers. And they've already started to see some success. They've launched campaigns at a number of different warehouses around the country. And I think that's what you're right to point that out. I think that's going to be a real um, flashpoint in terms of where the future of the labor movement lies, because you got to get into organizations like Amazon. I mean, that's where the tech has been so resistant, whether it's, you know, Elon Musk at Tesla or Google or Meta, Facebook, all these companies are, they might talk a good game about workers' rights and even like provide some decent wages. But when it comes to allowing workers to have a say over their lives on the job, um, their, you know, fear that goes against their entire business model, which is built on expendable labor and treating people like, you know, cogs in order to um, churn out profit. And so getting um, getting workers organized in these fields is going to be critical. And I do think that that's we're going to see a lot more agitation around that. And the fact that the, you know, Teamsters, the UPS workers were able to win such um, I mean, granted, membership is still voting on the contract. I, I don't know exactly how they'll come down, but you've got to say that contract was really 
um, beneficial for for workers. And I think starting to see things like that, if you're an Amazon worker and like see the protections that they're going to win, that's probably going to turn more people on to the idea of having um, having a union behind you. But it's going to take organizing muscle and it's going to take a lot of resources. And I think that's where that's going to be the next challenge for the labor movement is to really to put resources into and, and really value new union organizing, not just protecting current members, but um, having the faculties be able to build a much larger share of the labor force. And that's the only way to um, push back against this declining union density as well. I mean, I don't think you're going to have, you, even with all these green shoots we're seeing that I'm talking about, you're not going to see the actual balance of power between employers and workers change with 10% union density. You've got to get it back to where it was, you know, uh, 50 years ago, if not, you know, far beyond that. And that you're right to point out that's that Amazon is going to be a major part of that. Oh yeah. And, uh, I think that um, we'll close it down at this point, which kind of ties up a lot of themes. And I, yesterday I was riffing with Monroe and I read to him a quote from the New York Times uh, where they're man in the street interviews and they found some 81 year old Republicans somewhere, I forget where, upstate New York. Uh, and I'm doing this from memory. I don't have it in front of me. And he was saying uh, that he used to be a Democrat, uh, but that, that Democratic Party that exists now is different than the one that used to exist, and it's abandoned the working man, the working class, and so now he's a Republican, and he's going to probably vote for Trump. And I'm like, <laughs> like it, there was so much just weirdness and just like recreation of history in that embedded in that man on the street interview. You can like do a dissertation on it, Miles. For instance, like. When was this paradise for the working class with the Democratic Party that you're 81? That means you were probably born at like 42 or something. So not quite sure where I must have missed that paradise for the Democratic Party. I all like the Clinton years, man. They pushed back from union and, and you know, uh, but that said, any initiative that even vaguely benefits working people, be it union organizing, NLRB decisions, minimum wage, joining strikes or staying away from strikes, taxation, like progressive or regressive taxes, et cetera, and so forth, are fought bitterly, like vehemently by the Republican Party. And have been my entire life and yours. You're a subset of my life because you're younger than me. And so I'm like, what a bizarre notion. Like it's hard enough for lefties to win in this country. But it's like when you have people saying that they're voting Republican because the Democrats have abandoned the working class. I do believe we've lost all forms of sanity and we're in an absurd world it'd be like someone in the city of chicago saying i'm going to vote for paul vallis over brandon johnson because i believe that paul vallis will be what more humane toward our school teachers which is the most absurd thing in the world if you look at their lives to me that's an equation so I'd love to close with your thoughts on the utter absurdity of that statement and what it means 
uh, for our political system and our labor movement. Go ahead. Well, one side of that uh, point could be uh, pretty valid in terms, and you reference it yourself. You know, Bill Clinton's uh, presidency was largely about things like NAFTA and permanent trade relations with uh, with China and um, welfare reform and all kinds of you know ways which did you know a disservice to working people and certainly the labor movement. Um, we didn't see really strong uh, you know pro union presidency in Barack Obama. Uh, either. And so when you think about like recent experiences under Democrats in power, there it's, I think it's, you know, a fair takeaway to say that they've not been the strongest allies of um, working people. The Republicans certainly haven't, because as you rightly point out, their agenda is like exactly against the all of the elements of, you know, of fighting working class movement, things like uh, yeah, minimum wage and uh, labor protections, um, rights on the job, you know, rights to paid sick leave, um, things like that. Those are Democratic priorities, but it's just a question. And you certainly, you know, Joe Biden has laid them out, right? And when he talks about the labor movement, I think Biden does a good job of like hitting the right points. It's just a matter of like summoning the political will to actually enact an agenda like that. And the fact that they weren't able to get the PRO Act through, for one, I mean, the big elements of the PRO Act, which I think has been called like the Trumpka Act now in the wake of uh, Richard Trumpka's death, um, was to put massive fines, I think up to like $50,000 on employers for intimidating their workers when it comes to um, you know, anti-union campaigns that they're running. And something like that is actual teeth that would allow for um, unions to emerge in places where employers are doing everything in their, you know, ability to stop unions from happening. I mean, even places that like call themselves progressive, like REI, for example, you know, or at least is thought of as like a liberal institution, they put out like a whole podcast of anti-union talking points for people. And like that kind of stuff is how employers are able to prevent unions from, um, from gaining a foothold. And um, Democrats, I think, have largely not done a good enough job on a national level of working to prevent that. And so I think when people have that um, narrative in their heads that like Democrats gave up on working people, I think it's also because there's been a right wing media machine, right? Like maybe that person was like watching Sinclair News or even Fox News or something. And if that's the information you're getting, right, is so that's going to paint your your judgment and your memory of things. Not everybody is like spending their their lives looking deeply into these issues. They're more like getting a vibe about things or they're seeing their lives either improve or 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 decline based on who's in power and who's in office and that's why i always come back to you know you've got to show people that government works and like improve their lives and there was a period people's lives were i mean it was during a pandemic which was hellish but when people were getting stimulus checks were getting like expanded unemployment insurance were getting a child tax credit even we're getting their student loan loan payments paused that was like a good thing i think for a lot of people and people did start to feel that and there is a tale of some of that but unfortunately all those policies like sunsetted and we didn't we decided not to keep doing it even though we had democrats in office so that's where i think people need to like take away like democrats need to learn a lesson and lots of democrats have learned that and do talk about these things right people like cory bush and ilhan omar 
um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, like they're they're calling out largely Democratic Party leadership for not fulfilling these things. And they talk about improving working people's lives and building a fighting labor movement and stand with striking workers. So it's not to say like everybody, the Dem Democrats means everybody in office, but it does mean the party leadership, the establishment, the people that are like deciding how to go about things, including taking, you know, if you say that the choke point is Joe Manchin or Kristen Cinema or whatever, then put some effort into actually, you know, using some sticks as well as some carrots when it comes to bringing your caucus together, I think. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a broader political question, I guess, but like, I think it's largely an excuse and you can't just rely on an excuse in order if you want to like continue to win power and win over people like this person you're talking about. I mean, maybe that person's too far gone, but it's probably speaking to a larger sense of, um, you know, dissatisfaction with how the Democrats have approached um, working people um, that exists across the country. And that's an issue that's going to have to be dealt with if you not just want to gain political power, but actually change how um, people's standards of living in this country. And I think that that should be the goal of politics if you believe that people deserve, you know, to have a more, have a more dignified life. I uh, I'll let it go at that because I have a million things I would say uh, in response, um, but I think we'll just have to uh, continue this discussion because uh, that guy's quote is in my head right now, and uh, my, my personal belief about that guy is that he never was a Democrat, uh, <laughs> and he's just rewriting his own history. He could be demented. I don't know. He's eighty-one years old. Lord knows what's going on in his head. Uh, and whatever reason he has for re voting for Republican, it has nothing to do with labor policy. Guarantee you that. Okay. He's just using that as an excuse. Uh, Miles, it's a blast talking to you, man. It's been way too long. I'm going to cut a deal with you the way I did with Stacy the other day, Stacy Davis Gates. So I'm going to get you on a regular schedule again because uh, it's too much fun talking politics with you and labor issues, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, so, Miles, just uh, do one last promo for In These Times before I let you get out the door. Go ahead. Well, definitely, as I said, um, sign up for a subscription. There's all kinds of deals, both for um, union members and if people are members of the Democratic Socialists of America. There's a special offer for DSA members to get um, free subscriptions. Um, the Democratic Socialists of America are having their uh, biannual convention this weekend in Chicago. So welcome to all the socialists that will be, you know, riding the train around town and not going to Lollapalooza, but instead, you know, using Democratic <laughs> principles to... Yeah, they're 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 going to be you know trying to unite the working class against oh, Lord. So it's a little different from vibing out in Grant Park. Um, but welcome to all the DSA members and um, and yeah, get a sign up for a free subscription if you are a DSA member, union member, but also um, you can just sign up for regular discounted subscriptions at. Uh, in these times.com, where you can also read some great coverage, including a number of great articles about the labor movement. Um, I just edited and posted on the site, including a great one by Hamilton Nolan um, about kind of like approaching labor, organizing in a different way. Nick French has a great article on how strikes are um, being used to gain uh, more power in the workplace, not just get better wages. So a lot of great stuff going on um, at the website. Definitely check out in these times.com. All right, very good. Miles Conflossen, and next time he's on, we'll talk some bulls. Uh, we run out of time, so I can't. We, we both love the bulls. That's something we both put up with uh, in our lives. And uh, 
The Bulls will be sensational this year, ladies and gentlemen. You can take my word for it. Uh, all right. Thank you very much, Miles Complassa. I also want to thank producer Chris doing an outstanding job. Hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Take care, everybody. And remember, you can always download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and a whole lot more, all at chicagoreader.com. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram to see what he's up to with those funny videos he makes. And like and subscribe to The Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.